This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Harvester by Jean Stratton Porter. Read by Cindy Steib. Chapter 16. Part 1. Granny Moreland's Visit. The following morning the girl was awakened by wheels on the gravel outside her window, and lifted her head to see Betsy passing with a load of lumber. Shortly afterward the sound of hammer and saw came to her, and she knew that singing water bridge was being roofed to provide shade for her. She dressed and went to the kitchen to find a dainty breakfast waiting, so she ate what she could, and then washed the dishes and swept. By that time she was so tired, she dropped on a dining-room window seat and lay looking toward the bridge. She could catch glimpses of the harvester as he worked. She watched his deft ease in handling heavy timbers and the assurance with which he builded. Sometimes he stood and with tilted head steadied his work a minute, then swiftly proceeded. He placed three tree trunks on each side for pillars, laid joists across, formed his angle, and nailed boards as a foundation for shingling. Occasionally he glanced toward the cabin, and finally came swinging up the drive. He entered the kitchen softly, but when he saw the girl in the window, he sat at her feet. "'Oh, but this is a morning, Ruth,' he said. She looked at him closely. He radiated health and good cheer. His tanned cheeks were flushed red with exercise, and the hair on his temples was damp. "'You have been breaking the rules,' he said. "'It is the law that I am to do the work until you are well and strong again. Why do you tire yourself?' "'I am so perfectly useless. I see so many things that I would enjoy doing. Oh, you can do everything else. Make me well. Make me strong.' "'How can I?' when you won't do as I tell you. I will. Indeed I will. Then no more attempts to stand over dishes and clean big floors. You mustn't overwork yourself at anything. The instant you feel in the least tired, you must lie down and rest. But man, I'm tired every minute, with a dead dull ache, and I don't feel as if I ever would be rested again in all the world. The harvester took one of her hands, felt its fevered palm, fluttering wrist pulse, and noticed that the brilliant red of her lips had extended to spots on her cheeks. He formed his resolution. "'Can't work on that bridge any more until I drive in for some big nails,' he said. "'Do you mind being left alone for an hour?' "'Not at all. If Bell will stay with me, I'll lie in the swing.' "'All right,' answered the harvester. I'll help you out and to get settled. Is there anything you want from town? No, not a thing. Oh, but you are modest, cried the harvester. I can sit here and name fifty things I want for you. Oh, but you are extravagant, imitated the girl. Please, please, man, don't. Can't you see I have so much now I don't know what to do with it? Sometimes I almost forget the ache just lying and looking at all the wonderful riches that have come to me so suddenly. I can't believe they won't vanish as they came. By the hour in the night I look at my lovely room, and I just fight my eyes to keep them from closing, for fear they'll open in that stifling garret to the heat of day and work I have not strength to do. 
I know yet all this will prove to be a dream, and a wilder one than yours. The face of the harvester was very anxious. Please to remember my dream came true, he said, and much sooner than I had the least hope that it would. I'm wide awake, or I couldn't be building bridges, and you are real, if I know flesh and blood when I touch it. If I were well, strong, and attractive, I could understand, she said. Then I could work in the house at the drawings, help with the herbs, and I'd feel as if I had some right to be here. All that is coming, said the harvester. Take a little more time. You can't expect to sin steadily against the laws of health for years and recover in a day. You will be all right much sooner than you think possible. Oh, I hope so, said the girl. But sometimes I doubt it. How could I come here and put such a burden on a stranger I can't see? I scarcely can remember what awful stress drove me. I had no courage. I should have finished in my garret as my mother did. I must have some of my father's coward blood in me. She never would have come. I never should. If it didn't make any real difference to you and meant all the world to me, I don't see why you shouldn't humor me. I can't begin to tell you how happy I am to have you here. I could shout and sing all day. It requires very little to make some people happy. You are not much, but you are going to be more soon, laughed the harvester, as he gently picked up the girl and carried her to the swing, where he covered her, kissed her hot hand, and whistled for Belshazzar. He pulled the table close and set a pitcher of iced fruit juice on it. Then he left her, and she could hear the rattle of wheels as he crossed the bridge and drove away. "'Betsy, this is mighty serious business,' said the harvester. "'The girl is scorching, or I don't know fever. I wonder. Well, one thing is sure. She is bound to be better off in pure cool air, and with everything I can do to be kind, than in Henry Jameson's attic with everything he could do to be mean. Pleasant men, those Jamesons.' Wonder if the girl's father was much like her Uncle Henry. I think not, or her refined and lovely mother never would have married him. Come to think of it, that's no law, Betsy. I've seen beautiful and delicate women fall under some mysterious spell and yoke their lives with rank degenerates. Whatever he was, they have paid the price. Maybe the wife deserved it and bore it in silence because she knew she did but it's bitter hard on Ruth. Girls should be taught to think at least one generation ahead when they marry. I wonder what Doc will say, Betsy. He will have to come and see for himself. I don't know how she will feel about that. I had hoped I could pull her through with care, food, and tonics, but I don't dare go any farther alone. Betsy, that's a thin, hot little hand to hold a man's only chance for happiness. "'Well, bridegroom, I've been counting the days,' said Dr. Carey. "'The missus and I made it up this morning that we had waited as long as we would. "'We are coming tonight. "'David?' "'It's all right, Doc,' said the harvester. "'Don't you dare think anything is wrong, "'or that I am not the proudest, happiest man in this world, "'because I appear anxious. "'I am not trying to conceal it from you. "'You know we both agreed at first that Ruth should be in the hospital, Doc.' Well, she should. She is what would be a lovely woman if she were not full of the poison of wrong food and air, overwork, and social conditions that have warped her. 
She is all I dreamed of and more. But I've come for you. She is too sick for me. I hoped she would begin to gain strength at once on changed conditions. As yet, I can't see any difference. She needs a doctor, but I hate for her to know it. Could you come out this afternoon and pretend as if it were a visit? Bring Mrs. Carey and watch the girl. If you need an examination, I think she will obey me. If you can avoid it, fix what she should have and send it back to me by a messenger. I don't like to leave her when she is so ill. I'll come at once, David. Then she will know that I came for you, and that will frighten her. You can do more good to wait until afternoon and pretend you are making a social call. I must go now. I'd have brought her in, but I have no proper conveyance yet. I'm promised something soon. Perhaps it is ready now. Goodbye. Be sure to come. The harvester drove to a livery barn and examined a little horse, a shining black creature that seemed gentle and spirited. He thought favorably of it. A few days before he had selected a smart carriage, and with this outfit tied behind the wagon, he returned to Medicine Woods. He left the horse at the bridge, stabled Betsy, and then returned for the new conveyance, driving it to the hitching post. At the sound of unexpected wheels, the girl lifted her head and stared at the turnout. "'Come on!' cried the harvester, opening the screen. "'We are going to the woods to initiate your carriage.' She went with little cries of surprised wonder. This is how you travel to Onabasha to do your shopping, to call on Mrs. Carey and the friends you will make, and visit the library. When I've tried out Mr. Horse enough to prove him reliable as guaranteed, he is yours, for your purposes only, and when you grow wonderfully well and strong, we'll sell him and buy you a real live horse and a stanhope, such as city ladies have and there must be a saddle so that you can ride. Oh, I'd love that, cried the girl. I always wanted to ride. Where are we going? To show you medicine woods, said the harvester. I've been waiting for this. You see there are several hundred acres of trees, thickets, shrubs, and herb beds up there, and if the wagon road that winds between them were stretched straight, it would be many miles in length so we have a cool, shaded, perfumed driveway all our own. Let me get you a drink before you start, and the little shawl. It's chilly there compared with here. Now, are you comfortable and ready? Yes, said the girl. Hurry, I've just longed to go, but I didn't like to ask. I am sorry, said the harvester. Living here for years alone, and never having had a sister, how am I going to know what a girl would like if you don't tell me? I knew it would be too tiresome for you to walk, and I was waiting to find a reliable horse and a suitable carriage. You won't scratch or spoil it up there? I'll lower the top. It is not as wide as the wagon, so nothing will touch it. This is just so lovely, and such a wonderful treat. Do you observe that I am not saying a word about extravagance? asked the girl, as she leaned back in the carriage and inhaled the invigorating wood air. The horse climbed the hill, and the harvester guided him down long, dim roads through deep forest, while he explained what large thickets of bushes were, why he grew them, how he collected the roots or bark, for what each was used, and its value. On and on they went, the way ahead always appearing as if it were too narrow to pass, 
yet proving amply wide when reached. Excited redbirds darted among the bushes, and the harvester answered their cry. Blackbirds protested against the unusual intrusion of strange objects, and a brown thrush slipped from a late nest close the road, wailing in anxiety. One after another, the harvester introduced the girl to the best trees, speculated on their age, previous history, and pointed out which brought large prices for lumber and which had medicinal bark and roots. On and on they slowly drove through the woods, past the big beds of cranesbill, violets, and lilies. He showed her where the mushrooms were most numerous, and for the first time told the story of how he had sold them and the violets from door to door in Onabasha in his search for her, and the amazed girl sat staring at him. He told of Dr. Carey having seen her once, and inquired as they passed the bed if the yellow violets had revived. He stopped to search and found a few late ones, deep among the leaves. "'Oh, if I only had known that,' cried the girl, "'I would have kept them forever.' "'No need,' said the harvester. "'Here and now I present you with the sole ownership "'of the entire white and yellow violet beds. "'Next spring you shall fill your room. "'Won't that be a treat?' "'One money never could buy,' cried the girl. "'Seems to be my strong point.' commented the harvester. The most I have to offer worthwhile is something you can't buy. There is a fine fairy platform. They can spare you one. I'll get it. The harvester broke from a tree a large fan-shaped fungus, the surface satin fine, the base mossy, and explained to the girl that these were the ballrooms of the woods, the floors on which the little people dance in the moonlight at their great celebrations. Then he added a piece of woolly dog moss, and showed her how each separate spine was like a perfect little evergreen tree. That is where the fairies get their Christmas pines, he explained. Do you honestly believe in fairies? Surely, exclaimed the harvester. Who would tell me when the maples are dripping sap, and the mushrooms springing up, if the fairies didn't whisper in the night? Who paints the flower faces, colors the leaves, enamels the ripening fruit with bloom, and frost the window-pane to let me know that it is time to prepare for winter. Of course. They are my friends and everyday helpers. And the winds are good to me. They carry down news when the tree-bloom is out, when the pollen sifts gold from the bushes, and it's time to collect spring roots. The first bluebird always brings me a message. Sometimes he comes by the middle of February, again not until late March, always on his day, Belshazzar decides my fate for a year. Six years we've played that game. Now it is ended in blessed reality. In the woods and at my work I remain until I die, with a few outside tries at medicine-making. I am putting up some compounds in which I really have faith. Of course they have got to await their time to be tested, but I believe in them. I have grown stuff so carefully, gathered it according to rules, washed it decently, and dried and mixed it with such scrupulous care. Night after night I've sat over the books until midnight, and later studying combinations. And day after day I've stood in the laboratory testing and trying, and two or three will prove effective, or I've a disappointment coming. You haven't wasted time. I'd much rather take medicines you make than any at the pharmacies. Several times I've thought I'd ask you, if you wouldn't give me some of yours. 
the prescription Dr. Carey sent does no good. I've almost drunk it, and I am constantly tired just the same. You make me something from these tonics and stimulants you've been telling me about. Surely you can help me. I've got one combination that's going to save life in my expectations, but, Ruth, it never has been tried, and I couldn't experiment on the very light of my eyes with it. If I should give you something and you'd grow worse as a result, I am a strong man, my girl, but I couldn't endure that. I'd never dare. But, dear, I am expecting Carrie and his wife out any time. Probably they will come today. It's so beautiful. And when they do, for my sake, won't you talk with him? Tell him exactly what made you ill, and take what he gives you. He's a great man. He was recently president of the National Association of Surgeons. Long ago he abandoned general practice, but he will prescribe for you. All his art is at your command. It's quite an honor, Ruth. He performs all kinds of miracles and saves life every day. He has not seen you, and what he gave me was only by guess. He may not think it is the right thing at all after he meets you. Then I am really ill? No, you only have the germs of illness in your blood, and if you will help me that much, we can eliminate them, and then it is you for housekeeper, with first assistant in me, the drawing tools, paint box, and all the woods for subjects. So, as I was going to tell you, Belshazzar and I have played our game for the last time. That decision was ultimate. Here I will work, live, and die. Here, please God, strong and happy, you shall live with me. Ruth, you have got to recover quickly. You will consult the doctor. Yes, and I wish he would hurry, said the girl. He can't make me new too soon to suit me. If I had a strong body, oh man, I just feel as if you could find a soul somewhere in it that would respond to all these wonders you have brought me among. Oh, make me well and I'll try, as woman never did before, to bring you happiness to pay for it. Careful now, warned the harvester. There is to be no talk of obligations between you and me. Your presence here and your growing trust in me are all I ask at the hands of fate at present. Long ago I learned to labor and to wait. By the way, here's my most difficult labor and my longest wait. This is the precious ginseng bed. How pretty! exclaimed the girl. Covering acres of wood floor, among the big trees stretched the lacy green carpet. On slender upright stalks waved three large leaves, each made up of five stemmed ovate little leaves, round at the base, sharply pointed at the tip. A cluster of from ten to twenty small green berries that would turn red later arose above. The harvester lifted a plant to show the girl that the Chinese name Jen Chen, meaning manlike, originated because the divided root resembled legs. Away through the woods stretched the big bed, the growth waving lightly in the wind, the peculiar odor filling the air. I am going to wait to gather the crop until the seeds are ripe, said the harvester, then bury some as I dig a root. My father said that was the way of the Indians. It's a mighty good plan. The seeds are delicate and difficult to gather and preserve properly. Instead of collecting and selling all of them to start rivals in the business, I shall replant my beds. I must find a half-dozen assistants to harvest this crop in that way, 
and it will be difficult, because it will come when my neighbors are busy with corn. Maybe I can help you. Not with ginseng digging, laughed the harvester. That is not woman's work. You may sit in an especially attractive place and boss the job. Oh, dear, cried the girl. Oh, dear, I want to get out and walk. Gradually they had climbed the summit of the hill, descended on the other side, and followed the road through the woods until they reached the briar patches, fruit trees, and the garden of vegetables, with big beds of sage, rue, wormwood, whorehound, and boneset. From there to the lake sloped the sunny fields of mullein and catnip, and the earth was molten gold with dandelion creeping everywhere. Too hot today, cautioned the harvester, too rough walking. Wait until fall, and I have a treat there for you. Another flower I want you to love, because I do. I will, said the girl promptly. I feel it in my heart. Well, I am glad you feel something besides the ache of fever, said the harvester. Then, noticing her tired face, he added, Now this little horse had quite a trip from town, and the wheels cut deeply into this wood soil and make difficult pulling. So I wonder if I had not better put him in the stable, and let him become acquainted with Betsy. I don't know what she will think. She has had sole possession for years. Maybe she will be jealous. Perhaps she will be as delighted for company as her master. Ruth, if you could have heard what I said to Belshazzar when he decided I was to go courting this year, and see what I did to him, and then take a look at me now, Merciful powers, I hope the dog doesn't remember. If he does, no wonder he forms a new allegiance so easily. Have you observed that lately, when I whistle, he starts, and then turns back to see if you want him? He thinks as much of you as he does of me right now. Oh, no, cried the girl. That can't be possible. You told me I must make friends with him, so I have given him food and tried to win him. You sit in the carriage until I put away the horse, and then I'll help you to the cabin and save you being alone while I work. Would you like that? Yes. She leaned her head against the carriage top the harvester had raised to screen her, and watched him stable the horse. Evidently he was very fond of animals, for he talked as if it were a child he was undressing, and kept giving it extra strokes and pats as he led it away. Ajax disliked the newcomer instantly, noticed the carriage and the woman's dress, and screamed his ugliest. The girl smiled. As the harvester appeared, she inquired, Is Ajax now sending a wireless to Ceylon asking for a mate? The harvester looked at her quizzically, and saw a gleam of mischief in the usually dull, dark eyes that delighted him. That is the customary supposition when he finds voice, he said. But since this has become your home, you are bound to learn some of my secrets. One of them I try to guard is the fact that Ajax has a temper. No, my dear, he is not always sending a wireless, I am sorry to say. I wish he was. As a matter of fact, he is venting his displeasure at any difference in our conditions. He hates change. He learned that from me. I will enjoy seeing him come for favor a year from now, as I learned to come for it even when I didn't get much, and the road lay west of Onabasha. Ajax, stop that. There's no use to object. You know you think that horse is nice company for you, and that two can feed you more than one. Don't be a hypocrite. Cease crying things you don't mean, 
and learn to love the people I do. Come on, old boy. The peacock came, but with feathers closely pressed and stepping daintily. As the bird advanced, the harvester retreated until he stood beside the girl, and then he slipped some grain to her hand, and she offered it. But Ajax would not be coaxed. He was too fat and well-fed. He haughtily turned and marched away, screaming at intervals. "'Nasty temper,' commented the harvester. "'Never mind. He soon will become accustomed to you, and then he will love you as Belshazzar does. Feed the doves instead. They are friendly enough in all conscience. Do you notice that there is not a colored feather among them? The squab that is hatched with one you may have for breakfast. Now let's go find something to eat.' and I will finish the bridge so that you can rest there tonight and watch the sunset on singing water. So they went into the cabin and prepared food, and then the harvester told the girl to make herself so pretty that she would be a picture, and come and talk to him while he finished the roof. She went to her room, found a pale lavender linen dress and put it on, dusted the pink powder thickly, and went where a wide bench made an inviting place in the shade. There she sat and watched her lightly expressed whim take shape. "'Soon as this is finished,' said the harvester, "'I am going to begin on that tea-table. I can make it in a little while if you want it to match the other furniture.' "'I do,' said the girl. "'Wonder if you could draw a plan showing how it should appear. I am a little shy on tea-tables. I think I can.' The harvester brought paper, pencil, and a shingle for a drawing-pad. Now remember one thing, he said, if you are in earnest about using those old blue dishes, this has got to be a big healthy table. A little one will appear top-heavy with them. It would be a good idea to set out what you want to use, arranged as you would like them, and let me take the top measurement that way. All right, I'll only indicate how its legs should be, and we will find the size later. I could almost weep because that wonderful set is broken. If I had all of it, I'd be so proud. The girl bent over the drawing. The harvester worked with his attention divided between her, the bridge, and the road. At last he saw the big red car creeping up the valley. Seems to be someone coming, Ruth. Guess it must be Doc. I'll go open the gate. Yes, said the girl. I'm so glad. You won't forget to ask him to help me if he can. The harvester wheeled hastily. I won't forget, he said, as he hurried to the gate. The car ran slowly, and the girl could see him swing to the step and stand talking as they advanced. When they reached her, they stopped, and all of them came forward. She went to meet them. She shook hands with Mrs. Carey and then with the doctor. I am so glad you have come, she said. I hope you are not lonesome already, laughed the doctor. I don't think anyone with brains to appreciate half of this ever could become lonely here, answered the girl. No, it isn't that. Aha! cried the doctor, turning to his wife. You see that the beautiful young lady remembers me, and has been wishing I would come. I always said you didn't half appreciate me. What a place you are making, David. I'll run the car to the shade and join you. For a long time they talked under the trees. Then they went to see the new home and all its furnishings. Now this is what I call comfort, said the doctor. 
David, build us a house exactly similar to this over there on the hill, and let us live out here also. I'd love it. Would you, Clara? I don't know. I never lived in the country. One thing is sure. If I tried it, I'd prefer this to any other place I ever saw. David, won't you take me far enough up the hill that I can look from the top to the lake? Certainly, said the harvester. Excuse us a little while, Ruth. As soon as they were gone, the girl turned to the doctor. Dr. Carey, David says you are great. Won't you exercise your art on me? I am not at all well, and oh, I'd so love to be strong and sound. Will you tell me? asked the doctor. Just enough to show me what caused the trouble? Bad air and water, poor light and food at irregular times, overwork and deep sorrow every wrong condition of life you could imagine, with not a ray of hope in the distance until now. For the sake of the harvester, I would be well again. Please, please try to cure me. So they talked until the doctor thought he knew all he desired, and then they went to see the gold flower garden. I call this simply superb, said he, taking a seat beneath the tree roof of her porch. Young woman, I don't know what I'll do to you if you don't speedily grow strong here. This is the prettiest place I ever saw. And listen to the music of that bubbling, gurgling little creek. Isn't he wonderful? asked the girl, looking up the hill, where the tall form of the harvester could be seen moving around. Just to see him, you would think him the essence of manly strength and force. And he is. So strong into the lake at all hours, at the dry house, on the hill, grubbing roots, lifting big pillars to support a bridge roof, and with it all a fancy as delicate as any dreaming girl. Doctor, the fairies paint the flowers, color the fruit, and frost the windows for him, and the winds carry pollen to tell him when his growing things are ready for the dry house. I don't suppose I can tell you anything new about him, but isn't he a perpetual surprise? never like anyone else, and no matter how he startles me in the beginning, he always ends by convincing me, at least, that he is right. I never loved any other man as I do him, said the doctor. I ushered him into the world when I was a young man, just beginning to practice, and I've known him ever since. I know few men so scrupulously clean. Try to get well and make him happy, Mrs. Langston. He so deserves it. You may be sure I will, answered the girl. After the visitors had gone, the harvester told her to place the old blue dishes as she would like to arrange them on her table, so he could get a correct idea of the size, and he left to put a few finishing strokes on the bridge cover. She went into the dining room and opened the china closet. She knew from her peep in the workroom that there would be more pieces than she had seen before but she did not think or hope that a full half-dozen tea-set and plates, bowl, platter, and pitcher would be waiting for her. "'Why, Ruth, what made you tire yourself to come down? I intended to return in a few minutes.' "'Oh, man!' cried the laughing girl, as she clung pantingly to a bridge pillar for support. "'I just had to come tell you. There are fairies, really truly ones.' They have found the remainder of the willow dishes for me. And now there are so many, it isn't going to be a table at all. It must be a little cupboard, especially for them, in that space between the mantel and the bookcase. 
There should be a shining brass tea canister and a wafer box, like the arts people make, and I'll pour tea and tend the chafing dish, and you can toast the bread with a long fork over the coals, and we will have suppers on the living room table, and it will be such fun. Be seated, cried the harvester. Ruth, that's the longest speech I ever heard you make, and it sounded, praise the Lord, like a girl. Did Doc say he would fix something for you? Yes, such a lot of things. I am going to shut my eyes and open my mouth and swallow all of them. I'm going to be born again and forget all I ever knew before I came here. And soon I will be tagging you everywhere, begging you to suggest designs for my pencil, and I'll simply force life to come right for you. The harvester smiled. Sounds good, he said. But Ruth, I'm a little dubious about force work. Life won't come right for me unless you learn to love me. And love is a stubborn, contrary bulldog element of our nature that won't be driven an inch. It wanders as the wind and strikes us as it will. You'll arrive at what I hope for much sooner if you forget it and amuse yourself and be as happy as you can. Then, perhaps all unknown to you, a little spark of tenderness for me will light in your breast. And if it ever does, we will buy a fanning mill and put it in operation, and we'll raise a flame or know why. And there won't be any force in that? What you can't compel is the start. It's all right to push any growth after you have something to work on. That reminds me, said the girl. There is a question I want to ask you. Go ahead, said the harvester, glancing at her as he hewed a joist. She turned away her face and sat looking across the lake for a long time. Is it a difficult question, Ruth? inquired the harvester to help her. Yes, said the girl. I don't know how to make you see. Take any kind of a plunge. I'm not usually dense. It is really quite simple after all. It's about a girl, a girl I knew very well in Chicago. She had a problem and it worried her dreadfully, and I just wondered what you would think of it. The harvester shifted his position so that he could watch the side of the averted face. You'll have to tell me before I can tell you, he suggested. She was a girl who never had anything from life but work and worry. Of course, that's the only kind I'd know. One day, when the work was most difficult and worry cut deepest, and she really thought she was losing her mind, a man came by and helped her. He lifted her out and rescued all that was possible for a man to save to her in honor, and went his way. There wasn't anything more. Probably there never would be. His heart was great, and he stooped and pitied her greatly and passed on. After a time another man came by, a good and noble man, and he offered her love so wonderful she hadn't brains to comprehend how or why it was. The girl's voice trailed off, as if she were too weary to speak further, while she leaned her head against a pillar and gazed with dull eyes across the lake. "'And your question?' suggested the harvester at last. She roused herself. "'Oh, the question! Why this? If in time, and after she had tried and tried, love to equal his simply would not come, would, would she be wrong to pretend she cared?' and do the very best she could, and hope for real love some day. Oh, David, would she? 
The harvester's face was whiter than the girl's. He pounded the chisel into the joist savagely. Would she, David? Let me understand you clearly, said the man in a dry, breathless voice. Did she love this first man to whom she came under obligations? The girl sat gazing across the lake, and the tortured harvester stared at her. I don't know, she said at last. I don't know whether she knew what love was or ever could. She never before had known a man. Her heart was as undeveloped and starved as her body. I don't think she realized love, but there was a something. Every time she would feel most grateful and long for the love that was offered her, that something would awake and hurt her almost beyond endurance. Yet she knew he never would come. She knew he did not care for her. I don't know that she felt she wanted him, but she was under such obligations to him that it seemed as if she must wait to see if he might not possibly come, and if he did she should be free. If he came she preferred him? There was a debt she had to pay if he asked it. I don't know whether she preferred him. I do know she had no idea that he would come, but the possibility was always before her. If he didn't come in time, would she be wrong in giving all she had to the man who loved her? The harvester's laugh was short and sharp. She had nothing to give, Ruth. Talk about wormwood, colocynth apples, and hemlock. What sort of husks would that be to offer a man who gave honest love? Lie to him? Pretend feeling she didn't experience? Endure him for the sake of what he offered her? Well, I don't know how calmly any other man would take that proceeding, Ruth. But tell your friend for me that if I offered a woman the deep, lasting, and only loving passion of my heart, and she gave back a lie and indifferent lips, I'd drop her into the deepest hole of my lake and take my punishment cheerfully. But if it would make him happy... He deserves every happiness, and he need never know. The harvester's laugh raised to an angry roar. You simpleton, he cried roughly. Do you know so little of human passion in the heart that you think love can be a successful assumption? Good Lord, Ruth, do you think a man is made of wood or stone that a woman's lips in her first kiss wouldn't tell him the truth? Why, girl, you might as well try to spread your tired arms and fly across the lake as an attempt to pretend a love you do not feel. You never could. I said a girl I knew. A girl you knew then. Any woman. The idea is monstrous. Tell her so and forget it. You almost scared the life out of me for a minute, Ruth. I thought it was going to be you. But I remember that your debt is to be paid with the first money you earn. And you could not have the slightest idea what love is if you honestly ask if it can be simulated. No, ma'am, it can't. Not possibly, not ever. And when the day comes that its fires light your heart, you will come to me and tell of a flood of delight that is tingling from the soles of your feet through every nerve and fiber of your body, and you will laugh with me at the time when you asked if it could be imitated successfully. No, ma'am. Now let me help you to the cabin. Serve a good supper and see you eat like a farmer. All evening the harvester was so gay he kept the girl laughing, and at last she asked him the cause. Relief, honey, relief, cried the man. You had me paralyzed for a minute, Ruth. I thought you were trying to tell me that there was someone so possessing your heart 
that it failed every time you tried to think about caring for me. If you hadn't convinced me before you finished that love never has touched you, I'd be the saddest man in the world tonight, Ruth. The girl stared at him with wide eyes and silently turned away. End of chapter 16, part 1